Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this episode, our guest is Martina Lees, a senior writer at the Sunday Times. Tonight at 10, we're in West London, where 12 people have died and many are still missing after this residential tower block was destroyed by fire. Next month sees the sixth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower disaster, when fire destroyed a 23-storey tower block in West London, killing 72 people. Martina has spent much of the last few years seeking answers to why the disaster really happened and who was to blame. She recently won a British Journalism Award for holding to account those responsible for the biggest public housing scandal in 50 years and for campaigning to free millions of people from having to pay for dangerous cladding to be replaced. But I began our conversation by asking Martina how she became a journalist and what interested her in reporting this particular story. My first job in journalism was a crime reporter in Johannesburg for the national paper Built in South Africa. Um, I've been a journalist for about 20 years and I think the reason why I entered journalism was really uh, growing up in apartheid South Africa. I was struck by how the lack of freedom to ask questions created this really unjust system. So I grew up in an environment where it was normal to not see black people around you, except possibly for the lady who worked in your house and the gardener. And people didn't question it. It was just that is how it is. The media wasn't free to report on it. And I, when I was 11, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, and I remember vividly watching it on television and my mother saying, this is history in the making. Yeah, I think it was coming from that background where I realised the importance of asking questions um, that can bring about change. Um, I uh, moved to Britain when I was uh, in my mid-twenties and I've spent half my life here now uh, working at first in uh, local media. I ran a one London-wide news portal for NewsQuest and then uh, started getting shifts at the Sunday Times and I spent some time at the Telegraph working on their website uh, where I ended up running the um, night news uh, shift on the website. Then I moved across to the Sunday Times and was part of the team launching its, at that time it had a standalone website separate from the Times and an iPad app. So I was, uh, I had a whole career in digital media where I at the um, eventually ended up editing a third of the Sunday Times across all digital platforms. But I missed writing and that was always the thing that I loved most writing features and and doing in-depth journalism so I switched back into that so about 10 years ago now initially wrote about property and things like in nice houses and interiors and so on and but the things that really interest me is is systemic injustice and sort of the nexus where uh, complex policy affect ordinary people and can really be detrimental so I wrote about things like the housing crisis and uh, the planning crisis and and so on and did a lot on the leasehold system. I mean, England and Wales are the only countries in the world that still have this feudal system, which is really nuts when you come from a place like South Africa. You're, what? How can you not own the home you bought? Then I started writing about cladding and the Grenfell fire, 
when that happened and my interest in that really started on looking at it as a wider scandal and what it exposed in the system so um yeah, and I've, that's really dominated my career the last few years what is it that you enjoy particularly about the area of of property if we give it that catch-all well everybody has a home it's one area of one of the few areas of journalism i think that that affects everyone not everybody goes to hospital or goes to has children who go to school or if you think about other areas um, or might necessarily be interested in the environment but we all have a home and the housing policy affects all of us and it can really it can have a huge impact and if you think about it half of the government departments has some kind of link to housing but a lot of the reporting on it isn't doesn't kind of link all those pieces together and what I've always been interested in is is kind of the combination of the big picture and how the complex policy affects people and that's that's what interested me I also love design and um, just practical advice which is part of my job as well but where I really come alive is the kind of policy social justice side of of housing. For listeners who may not be aware of what happened, what the terrible things that happened at, at Grenfell, would you, would you be able just to summarise for us what happened that terrible night? It was um, in June 2017, and there was a terrible fire at a 24-storey building in West London called Grenfell Tower, which uh, spread very rapidly because of the cladding and the insulation on the outside of the building, and 72 people died, including 18 children. And it exposed a nationwide scandal of unsafe homes. Uh, Today, there's about 700,000 people still living in unsafe flats with all sorts of dangerous cladding and insulation and other fire risks, which still have not been fixed. And many more people have been unable to sell their homes because they can't prove whether it's safe. So the scandal has, in total, affected over 4 million people and it has paralysed part of the housing market. So it's incredibly complex. It has frozen many lives. Because it's, it's, it's not a mainstream topic, a lot of the reporting on it hasn't been very good. And for me, it's, it's been something that has really... It's been really important to me to fight for justice for the people caught up in it, both the families of Grenfell, uh, some of who I've met um, through my reporting, and all the other people who are still stuck in, in unsafe flats where the same thing could happen again. Were there concerns before that? I didn't report on the fire itself when it happened. It was When I started looking at it, it was actually a, more than a year after it happened. Obviously, I knew that it had happened, but... You know, in the initial reporting, the narrative in the media was this rich council who's put the scladding on this building to make it look pretty for the rich people living around it. And they left all the poor people in there in a death trap and no one cared. And it was this kind of narrative about rich versus poor and with some racism mixed in there. But no one asked about why did that materials end up on that building? How was that ever allowed? and how many other buildings are unsafe. And when I first became aware of it, as I was at a meeting at Parliament uh, with leaseholders uh, who were campaigning for reform, and someone in the room asked a question and said, how many of you live in buildings with the same kind of planning as on Greenfield Tower? And lots of hands went up, and then they asked, how many of you have other kinds of dangerous cladding? Um, and then a lot more hands went up, and then 
the penny drop for me to realize this is much much bigger and it's gonna have a huge impact so at that time I was I was working on the property section which is um not the natural home of hardcore reporting because normally it's it's writing about nice houses and what's happening in the market and and that sort of thing so it it took a lot of buy-in my my editor of the property section was really um involved in this and really championed it which was instrumental but when I initially started writing about it the main editors on the newspaper and the news desk didn't really get the magnitude of it and it was hard to get even to get a space in the main paper some years into the scandal the government tightened the guidance on safety um, of materials on buildings which basically meant that no one could sell a flat and when I realized this it ran at the bottom of page 18 (laughs) because people didn't get it didn't understand it it was in the middle of the pandemic that we had a change of um, management at the paper and our new deputy editor he was really interested in cladding and I remember he uh, set up a meeting and um, asked me about it and two weeks later it was on the front page for the first time it had a huge response we had over 400 letters from readers which the letters editor said he can't remember ever having such a huge response so we launched a campaign uh, which has been running now for a number of years and it has been instrumental in the government changing the law last year um, to protect leaseholders from having to pay to fix their buildings because the, initially the legal situation was that the only people who could be forced to pay to fix the buildings were the innocent people who bought the flats not the people who built the buildings or who signed it off or who made the materials who went on them or who owned the buildings but now the situation has been changed so the developers and um, building owners are first in line not the uh, leaseholders um, and the government has also um, well it's now there's now nine billion pounds on the table to to fix buildings um, about eight billion of that came along during our campaign so it's been really a privilege to to do something that's made a difference to a lot of people um in journalism i think many people into journalism with the uh, kind of a, a, the passion of wanting to make a difference and speaking out for people who can't but the reality of it is a lot of your work um does not do that and you know for me it's been really meaningful to really make a difference here Martina, is there one case study or one person that sticks out in your mind as as someone who, who's been particularly affected by this in terms of personal cost? In terms of Greenfield Tower itself, there's many incredibly tragic stories of the people who live there, but one that really stood out for me and who I met the family um, was um, the story of a little five-year-old girl who lived on the 20th floor and um, she lost her her mum, her dad, her older sister, and her baby sister. So she was completely orphaned by the fire. So that was the Belcardi family. I have agreed to not name the little girl to protect her identity. She's now 10 going on 11. And no one has been charged with the crime for the building. The companies who put up the materials on Grenfell Tower, who've all made misleading statements about them, have not made opinion conversation and only 7% of the unsafe flats have been fixed. So 
there's a long, long way for justice to be done for her. And in terms of the wider fallout, um, through reporting on this, I've gotten to know many people who's been caught up in, in the situation. One family that I remember was um, a little Ella Harris, who's, she must be five now too, who lived with her father, Matt, who's an NHS lab technician in a flat in Manchester. And he got a £100,000 bill to fix his flat, which was more than he actually paid to buy it. Because of the change in law, they he's no longer liable for that. But as far as I know, I don't think their building has been fixed yet. Why does it take journalists to see these bills being handed out for ridiculous amounts of money to people who cannot pay it? Why does it take journalists to do this, do you think? The reason the scandal happened in the first place is because, I mean, part of it is because the government made really bad rules and did not fix them for 20, 30 years, despite many warnings. And the companies who abuse that, they all have vested interest to protect their bottom lines. So um, these things do not change unless they are exposed. And they also don't change unless someone keeps talking about it. So it took a very long time. I mean, it was four years after the scandal when the government finally, um, under Michael Gove last year, changed the legal position. Um, I mean, the ministers had been saying all along, oh, the leaseholders shouldn't pay, but they didn't do anything to change the law to stop them from having to pay because legally they were the only people who could be forced to pay. So they got the bills. So our reporting was really, uh, it was an important part of that. And because it is a really difficult, complex subject, it's, you know, every building has an incredibly as its own unique situation with different companies involved, different pre-holders, different developers, different manufacturers, and the, the technical stuff of what's wrong with the building is different in every case. So every time I write about it, it's in, very time consuming. It's it's hard work. You have to also talk to people who has been through so much, who, who are scared about speaking out. So um, it, it, is, it is not easy work. And I think a lot of the reporting on it has not been good. It's been technically inaccurate. What I have been trying to do throughout is kind of take a step back and not just just not just report on the next government announcement or the latest development, but but kind of asking the the bigger questions to to try and see what is really wrong here. And it's through speaking to the leaseholders in many different buildings where we are started to see patterns to see, you know. Well, the government might say the banks are now lending, but you know when I speak to the people on the ground, that doesn't line up with that. So it's a very long way from being solved. So and there's always these this political rhetoric to say, no, we have solved the crisis. But when you actually speak to people on the ground and you have a deeper dig through all their technical reports and looking at the statistics and so on that they are and analysing that, then the two doesn't line up. So doing that, um, taking the time to do that and. No, not many journalists were doing that. Inside Housing um, magazine has done a brilliant job reporting on the scandal, but um, I don't. And the Daily Mail had a campaign which has gone on very quiet now. But there hasn't been many journalists who really have done a deep dive and and walked with it. So um, it's it also takes an investment from the paper to do that. So it's expensive journalism. In terms of keeping not only your readers interested, but keeping your editors interested in the subject matter, Martina. I mean, what have you learned about 
how to do that. Well, in this case, I think it has been an evolving story as well. But for me, it always came back to the human stories. One thing about doing kind of campaigning, a long-term investigation is, is it's really important to work on those relationships and, you know, get to know people both who, you know, are in the campaign groups and who are affected by it. So I would go back and check with people how, what has changed. Um, and um, there's some politicians who have been campaigning on it and some experts who's been really good at speaking out. So, you know, working with those people and maintaining those relations are important to be able to find new angles. What I would say too is you might be working in a in an area of journalism where you think there's there's something, um, there is an issue here, but you know, sometimes you're too close to it to see the story. So I had been reporting on it a while, but um, when I kind of, sat down with the the new editor um, Ben and told him what I had seen he was just astonished and it was a case of just writing what I have been immersed in in an accessible way putting it all to get all the pieces together and it ended up being a really strong story and then it, it then is how, how do you follow that up sometimes I did it through telling the story through one person's scenario um, but then um, and I looked at the, the, what data is available and, and try and try to analyze that. So um, one of the issues the government hasn't, they still don't know how many buildings are affected, but they do, there is st- statistics now on the type of cladding on Grenfell, uh, Grenfell type cladding, there's statistics on other types of cladding on tall buildings and there's, they've done a pilot study on smaller buildings. So what I've done is I've taken all those data, put my put it into my own spreadsheet to calculate how many buildings are affected, you know, and that's how I get to the number of 700,000 people still stuck in dangerous flats. Only 7% of them have been fixed, but that is not a, no one's going to hand up to you on a plate. You have to go and sit and trawl through, <laughs> through the, all the different reports. So it's like taking a step back and asking the questions, how many people are really affected? Uh, what has change so if the government says the banks have started lending or we are now making the developers pay is that really what's happening on the ground that's not easy questions to answer but you have to go out to speak to people on the ground to see is that the truth and that gives you a new angle to say no this is not what's happening And I'm curious about the turning of an investigation or reporting into a campaign having the the paper put their name under it to say that it's now a Sunday Times campaign, gave me a platform to write about it. And I was basically seconded to do it in practice for two, two years that I didn't write about anything else, which is unusual. So yeah, so if you can get that level of buy-in, it gives you a mandate to keep at it. And th- that also meant that I could run content across the newspaper. So sometimes it doesn't mean that you always need to write something for one section. So some of the stories ran in the Sunday Times magazine. I did a, for the five year anniversary, I did a reconstruction of what happened at Grenfell Tower, trawling through all the evidence from the public inquiry and kind of reconstructing the events of the night and weaving in all the corporate lies and cover-ups in between and juxtaposing the human stories with the corporate wrongdoing was very powerful but there were other stories that ran in the main paper and then very human kind of features that ran in the property section 
um, we wrote, wrote columns about it in the opinion section and it's also you know working with big names in the industry um, Phil Spencer the property presenter um, I interviewed him quite a few times who gave me good quotes and we had a lot of celebrities and industry figures back our campaign Kerry Mulligan and Marcus Mumford even signed up so it was kind of just really think about it in a broad way who can you talk to who to give quotes on it and where is the best place to run different kinds of articles so and was it your idea to make a, a campaign uh yeah um i after we did the first front page story the 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 campaign groups have been who had been campaigning to try and get it um airtime with the government uh were they were about to launch a campaign with the number of asks and and I saw the opportunity of if we can get the Sunday Times behind it, it could really be powerful. So but they had a lot of people who had been getting celebrities to sign the the the, the things they were asking for and um and so on. And I'd done a lot of the thinking work. Yeah, so we just joined forces basically and yeah, it, it gave a really good result. What's left to report? What do don't we yet know or what hasn't your campaign yet achieved? Well, there's still ninety three percent of flats that haven't been fixed. So um now what I'm seeing on the ground is companies who are on the hook, uh who've either built it or own the buildings, who are making all sorts of excuses not to pay to fix them. So that's something I I'm looking at um, and also the Grenfell Inquiry will release their final rep- reports towards the end of this year, early next year and only after that will the police uh, investigation bring any charges. So it will remain to be seen who is charged, if anyone is, um, and then there will be court cases and and more, more stuff coming out of the woodwork on what went on, um, you know, inside the manufacturers who made all those products um they all all three of them made misleading statements about what went on the building and the same products ended up on many other buildings um so it's a very good it's a big part of the reason why it became such a big scandal so i think there's still there's still going to be a lot more coming out and yeah we'll keep writing about it i mean is it your personal opinion that people should go to prison essentially for what's happened i think so yes um yeah, if you you cannot you cannot make something which you know is dangerous, knowingly sell it for thousands of buildings and then make lots of money out of it, and you know just get off scot free. Any other advice you would have for our listeners who are maybe at the just the beginning of their their career? Anything that you've you know you kind of wish you'd known earlier? Well, I would say use the access you have. One thing. When I was uh, working as a digital reporter, I had access to, you know, editors. You could walk up to them and pitch things. And I didn't do, do that enough. I was, you know, shy. So use the access you have just to pitch ideas. Ideas is the big currency. People are always looking for ideas. So if you've got one, pitch it. If you've got access, use it. And don't be afraid to ask the questions that no one else is asking. So, you know, the media creates a bandwagon which has got a narrative and you know it, it really is beneficial to come with a different perspective and think about you know what what are the questions that are not being asked and what could be underneath here um, and for me in this story it, talking to the people normal people on the ground was really what 
kind of got me um made made me realize that there is a much bigger story here so um yeah don't just listen to the big names um go out there and speak to normal people um who's affected by things and that will tell you what's really going on you've been listening to jlab a podcast brought to you by the civic journalism lab at newcastle university my name's ian wiley thanks for tuning in